Today we're beginning a new series on the topic of holiness. Hebrews 12, 14 says this. It says, pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. The writer of Hebrews lists two things that we're to strive for. We're going to read more in there. But he lists two things that we're to strive for. We're to strive that we're to seek after, and that is peace and holiness. This verse is in the middle of a section that speaks about not losing heart whenever God disciplines you. And it's sandwiched between there and a call to renew one's spiritual vitality. The reason that I'm speaking on holiness is, first of all, because I feel that the Lord commanded me to do that. And that's enough. If God says that, we don't even have to ask him any other questions. But beyond that, I sense that God wants to renew someone's spiritual lives. He wants to strengthen you. He wants to renew your spiritual vitality. Somebody needs to be refreshed today. Somebody needs their strength renewed. Somebody's life needs to be revitalized. Someone in this room needs to be filled with the Holy Ghost and with power so that God's Spirit just overflows you. And if there's anything that energizes the man or woman of God, it's when you walk in corporate unity, when you walk in unity with others, okay? And when you walk in personal holiness, If there's anything that saps your spiritual vitality, your spiritual life, let divisions come into your marriage, into your close relationships, into the church. Let divisions come in and it just drains you. Let fights and conflicts come in. It sucks the life out of you. It sucks the life out of you. And if there's anything that causes you to lose your spiritual strength and your spiritual life, just start dabbling in sin. You start losing your confidence. You start losing your boldness. You start losing your faith. You start doubting and becoming afraid. And so those are two things that are vitally important. That we walk together in unity and that we live lives of holiness. And so really we want to call the church back to holiness Hebrews 12, verse 7 says this. It says, If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. And I'm reading from the New King James Version. I liked how it said this. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all of us have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, We've had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them. But he for our profit, listen to this, that we may be partakers of his holiness. No chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Anybody have those experiences? I had a few of those in my lifetime. Nevertheless, afterwards, 
it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Listen to verse 12. Therefore, discipline's good, he's saying. This is to the person who feels weary. Listen, this is for the person whose your spiritual vitality, you're drained, you're worn down, you're tired. You feel like you're just going through the motions sometimes. Therefore, strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be dislocated, but rather be healed. Listen to verse 14. Pursue peace with all people. And holiness without which no one will see the Lord. I'm going to read verse 15. Looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God. Lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble. And by this many be defiled. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau. Who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. For you know that afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. When we talk about holiness, people have all different ideas of what that means. When I was a child growing up, now they did not necessarily preach this, but it was inferred. Holiness entailed for the ladies... No makeup, lipstick. 25 years ago, when we were in Baltimore, I had a conversation in a board meeting, and a deacon said they were upset because they let the little girls in missionettes, they did a class on preparing their nails. And, and my wife and I, I led this young lady to the Lord, and she saved, started coming to the church, and she was a manicurist, and she helped out with missionettes. And so they would do the little kids' nails. The girls, they were 13 or whatever, taught them how to care for their nails and stuff like that. And this gentleman began to complain. Him and his wife began to complain about her and say stuff. They said, well, you can put on clear nail polish or pink, but you can't do red. It made me so furious. I said, show me it in the Bible. I don't usually get loud. and I wasn't really loud. I was spiritually inspired. <laughs> Here's this woman who gives her life to Jesus. She's a young lady in her early 20s. She's so excited about serving God, and, and she loved these kids and wanted to help. And this clown is going, you know, they'd go around and gossip about everybody, and they would say to people, they said, well, you could wear pink nail polish or clear, but don't do red. And I was like, dude, just show it to me in the Bible. You know, we just stopped the board meeting. And I said, show me in the Bible. Give me a chapter and a verse. Just here, show me. They can't because sometimes we get caught up in these things and that we put heavy burdens on people. And the Bible does say that we're to dress modestly. Okay? We're to dress modestly. But, you know, growing up in church, there was this whole list of things. Ladies, I don't know where it said that in the Bible, but open-toed shoes. You didn't wear open-toed shoes. A lot of times when we talk about holiness, for a lot of people, it feels like, ah, I don't know if this applies to me because it feels like it's so far out of my reach because I know me. I know who I am. And holiness, that's like for somebody else. When you talk about 
okay, pastor, I like Jesus and I like all this stuff. But when you talk about holiness, I, I feel like it's just, it's somehow above me. That's for the pastors. That's for the missionaries and the old people. That's who that's for. It's so far beyond who I am, many people feel. But the most basic meaning of the term for holy is to be set apart, separate, or dedicated to God. We know that God is holy. He's something that's other. He's different. He's apart from ordinary and mundane and common. Yes, the word carries with it a strong connotation of morality and moral purity. But the primary meaning is that something has been set apart. It's different because it belongs to God. Leviticus chapter 26 verse 12. God says, I'll be your God. He says to Israel, and you'll be my people. In Leviticus chapter 20, 26, God says, you shall be holy to me. For I, the Lord, am holy, and I have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. Biblical holiness describes a unique relationship that God has established and desires with and for his people. One author wrote, this relationship has moral ramification, but it precedes moral behavior. This is what he says. We're called to be holy. Unless we rightly understand and affirm the primacy of this relationship, we fall into the inevitable trap of reducing holiness to mere morality. There's a lot of people who are not saved, who are moral, who have very high moral standards, but when Jesus comes, they will be lost because their faith is not in Jesus Christ. They've not been born again. I can tell you, I know some people who have much higher moral standards than the vast majority of people who call themselves Christians, and yet they are not born again. They don't know Jesus. Holiness is more than just mere morality, and and I like morality. I like doing the right thing. But it goes beyond that. It's this idea that we belong to God. What is it that makes the bread and the fruit of the vine sacred? What is it that makes it holy? We're going to celebrate that in a few minutes. What do we call this? We call this holy communion. What is it that makes it holy? It's that Jesus consecrated it. And he said it's holy. Remember whenever God told Moses to take off his shoes at the burning bush. He says, take off your shoes because you are standing on what? Holy ground. What was it that made the ground holy? There was nothing intrinsically holy about that particular rock, about that particular sand, or that particular soil. It was holy because God declared it to be so, and so it was. When God says this is holy ground, it becomes holy ground. When God declares it to be so, it is. What makes something sacred and holy is the touch of God upon it. The difference between the profane and the holy is simply the touch of the Lord or the declaration of the Lord. When God touched you, you and I became holy. 
You realize that? Jesus blessed the elements. He consecrated them and he made them holy. And so throughout the centuries, we celebrate Holy Communion. The ground where Moses stood, God said it's holy. So he took off his shoes and he recognized it as holy. God has touched your life, my friend. He's called you. He set you apart for himself. He's declared you and I holy. So when God says you're holy, you're holy. You may say, just like the ground, there was no intrinsic value in that sand. There was no intrinsic holiness in that rock. But God says it's holy, so it became holy. And so with you and I, we may look at ourselves and we say, well, I don't really see a thought of value in me, but God has called you. He said, you're mine. You belong to me. And so God makes you and he calls you holy, that you've been set apart for him and for his purpose. Oh, what a glorious thing. That me, that you... That you are holy. What a glorious thing. Because God has declared you to be. So listen to this. The apostle Paul refers to the church in Colossians 3.12. As God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the apostle Peter. And 1 Peter 2.19 says, but you are a chosen people. A royal priesthood. A holy nation. A people belonging to God that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. I'm going to be talking more about holiness in the future and I don't want to get way ahead of myself. The thing is, a lot of times we worry about defiling ourselves. We're going to talk about that in the future. The incredible thing about Jesus, through the law, you'd go out and if you touched a leper if you came into contact with certain things, you became what? Ceremonially what? Unclean. The crazy thing about Jesus, what set him apart from everybody else and from the religious leaders of the day, when Jesus bumped into lepers, when he touched lepers, they became cleansed. Can I suggest this to you today? That the Spirit of God lives inside of you and you don't have to be afraid when you want. Jesus talked to the prostitute and, and they come back and they, and they find him talking to this woman at the well. And if he knew what kind of woman she was, well, he knew what kind of woman she was and she didn't defile him, but there was something about him that transformed her life. May I suggest to you today that the purpose of the church, you are the light of the world, a city that's set on a hill that this light can't be hidden and that when you go out and walk in holiness and obedience to God that when you touch other people when you bump into them they don't change you but you change them what is it it's something inside of you that's living that's active it's the spirit of God that's in your life now listen to this when Jesus ministered he didn't worry about being defiled he reached out and touched lepers and they became in marriage the Bible says don't be unequally yoked. So for our young people, we would say to them, I would encourage you not to find the, my daughter or for my son. I'd encourage them not necessarily to go certain places looking for a wife. If you're a teenager, the girl at the juvenile delinquency center may not be where you want to look. You dads, you don't want your daughter going down to Barnes's Hall like, hey, is there any young men in here who would like to take me out? No, you, you, don't, you don't want to do that. 
However, the Bible says, listen to what it says. It says in 1 Corinthians 7, it's talking about marriage and a believer who comes to know Christ and they're married to an unbeliever. Listen to what it says. To the rest, I say this, I, not the Lord. If any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she's willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife. And the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, what's it say? They're holy. They're holy. Can I encourage you to quit hiding? Quit running? You're holy. You've been set apart. I want you to get that in your heart and in your spirit. You have been set apart. If you have been born again, and some of you who are not born again yet, I want to tell you, you've been set apart for God. From the foundations of time, God knew you and he called you by name. He's had a plan for you. He's had a purpose for you. He looks at you and he says, that one is mine. They belong to me. You may not have surrendered yet, but God has already planned for you, his will for you, and he sees you as being holy. Now you have to respond. If you want eternal life, you have to respond to him. But in that one aspect of holiness, you've already been set apart for God. You're not made for the mundane and for the ordinary and to be defiled. You've been called to a higher purpose, a higher calling. That always encouraged me because I always felt... I just felt like I never could get my stuff together. And mom would always tell me that God knew me by name and he called me. Some of you need to hear that today, that you've already been set apart. Just like that ground was called, God says, that one is mine. They belong to me. I have a plan for them. Most of you are familiar with the story of the battle of Jericho found in Joshua 6. Jericho was the first city that the Israelites encounter as they enter the promised land. Jericho had large fortified walls and it stood between the people of Israel and God's promise to them. It was the first real opposition or barrier that stood in their way as they crossed the Jordan and entered into the promised land. And God gives Joshua a battle plan. He says, this is what we're going to do. For six days, you're going to line people up. You're going to put people in front. You're going to take the ark, put the ark in the middle of this parade, you're going to have seven musicians who will blow a ram's horn and they're to walk around. Everyone's lining up. We're going to walk around the city. The musicians are going to blow the horn. You keep your mouth shut. Don't say anything. Don't point at anybody. Don't yell at anybody. Don't say nothing. Just walk around the city and we're done. We're going to go back and sit down. That's what they did. So they walk around the city one time. I can imagine a lot of these guys thinking, this sounds a little crazy. They go out day number two. Probably the first day it was kind of overwhelming to the people in the city of Jericho. Here comes this vast army against them. It's kind of like the VeggieTale thing. They're looking down the wall laughing at them. And the first time they go around, it's probably intimidating. But the second or third day, by the fourth or fifth day, and they've just walked around and blew their horns, they're like, These guys, what are they going to do? On the seventh day, he says, I want you to go to the city. I want you to circle around it. And at the end, after you do it seven times, 
the musicians are going to give a signal. They're going to blow a loud blast. And when they do, you shout a shout of praise. And the walls are going to come down. The Israelites obey. They listen to God. They do that. They do exactly that. And exactly what God says would happen would happen. The walls fell down. They run in, they defeat their enemies, and God made some stipulations, though. They were to destroy everything with the sword and fire. Everything that day was to be devoted to the Lord. It was holy to the Lord. It was dedicated to the Lord. It was set apart to God. The silver, the gold, the vessels of bronze and iron were to go into the temple treasury. But every person, every animal was to be destroyed. Every building was to be burned. They have an awesome victory, and it goes exactly as the Lord had said. They came to the next city that they're to capture. It's a smaller town, and the name of that town was Ai. Ai is not nearly as imposing as Jericho. And after that great victory, they say, hey, let's not bother everyone. Only send two or 3,000 soldiers. But when they go out to face Ai, they suffer a defeat. When they go out to face Ai with this army, 36 of their men are killed. And the people of Ai come out and chase them. And they start hightailing it out of there. They run back in defeat. They run away. They come back with their tail between their legs. When this happens, they lose heart. I want you to notice that part. They lose heart. They lose their confidence. They lose their courage. They lose their faith, their assurance. When they come back, not only do they lose heart, but everybody who's with them loses heart too. And Joshua falls on his face before the ark, tears his clothes, and he begins to cry out to the Lord. In essence, God, why have you done this to us? Why did you bring us out here Now the Amorites and the Canaanites are going to destroy us. We're doomed. And he says this, If only we had been content to stay on the other side of the Jordan. This guy goes from walking around a city and yelling and the walls falling down to a few minutes later, a day or two later, a couple days later, he wants to quit and go back. Oh man, it would have been so much better if we hadn't even come here. And after a while, God lets him go on like he does with us. And after a while, God said, hey, stand up. What are you doing on your face? The problem is that Israel has sinned. They have broken covenant and taken some of the devoted things. They have acted deceitfully. I want you to hear this in Joshua 7, 12. It says this. That's why the Israelites cannot stand against their enemies. They turn their backs and run away because they have been made liable to destruction. I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy whatever among you is devoted to destruction. Go consecrate the people. Tell them, consecrate yourself in preparation for tomorrow. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. There are devoted things among you, Israel. And once you notice this verse, you cannot stand against your enemies until you remove them. Oh, and I'm talking to somebody now. 
There were things that were holy, that were dedicated to God, that were in their possession, and it didn't belong to them. There were things that God had said, that's holy, that's mine, don't touch it, don't take it. Later on, he was going to let them take possession of the gold and silver and, and let them take the spoils of war and enrich themselves. But God said, this is mine, don't take it, don't touch it. And they reached out and touched it. And as a result of it, they could not stand against their enemies. Can I tell you today? that there's some people who can't stand against their enemies because they have devoted things and their possession. You will never be able to stand against your enemy. You will never be able to stand strong. You'll never be able to stand in confidence until you rid yourself of those things. Isn't that incredible? Now's the time. See, when we talk about being holy, there's things that God says. And what God said to them is, I've made, in essence, Those people who had done that, they're holy to me. But they've been devoted to destruction. They've been devoted to destruction. Until they destroyed that out of their life, they would not be able to stand. Remember we started our message with God wanting your spiritual vitality to come back. Friend, if there's things in your life that have been devoted to God, you won't be able to stand against your enemies if you're still holding on to them. I know this. I know that the Holy Spirit speaks to the heart of his people and he brings truth alive in our hearts. There's some people here today who you can't stand. You'll never be able to stand against your enemy as long as you keep those things in your life that don't belong there. You've already been set apart for God. You belong to him. He said, I'm going to be your God. And you're going to be my people. I've chosen you. I've selected you. But in spite of that, some of you run. You can't stand. You are defeated. The only way that that's going to change is when you rid yourself of those things. Since today that... The Holy Spirit's calling some of you. Maybe you stayed in your pew, but He's asking you to lay some things down at the altar. He's asking you to surrender to His purposes and His plans in your life. I want to lead you in a prayer, and and we're going to believe that the Holy Spirit is going to, He's going to accomplish a work in you that lasts forever, that sticks in your life. Father, in Jesus' name, I pray for my friends who in the past, and I say that in the past, they were not able to stand before their enemies because there were devoted things in their life. There were things that belonged to you that they were holding on to. There were things that they had taken that were not theirs because, Lord, you have calling them you have been speaking to them and so today lord we lay those things down we turn away from anything that would hinder us that would slow us down lord we yield ourselves to your will in our lives we yield ourselves to your will in our lives we confess with our mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord. 
We believe in our hearts that God raised Jesus from the dead. As a result of that, we choose to put our faith in you. We choose to believe that you are the one who's calling us. You're the one who's setting us apart for your divine purposes and your divine plans. We are holy because you called me holy. The one who called us is holy. As a result of us responding to you in faith and putting our trust in Jesus as our Lord and Savior, we have a righteousness that's given to us, that's credited to us. So Lord, we thank you for forgiving us of our sins and making us right with you in the name of Jesus.